welcome back to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television shows of the fantasy, sci-fi, and horror genre. I am your hostess, Mr. Seneca. And I am your host, Dr. Chris. And we're, uh, what you just listened to was the Adams Family Broadway soundtrack, the theme uh, for the Adams Family musical. And, uh, you know, but we are doing episodes 24 and 25 today. Uh, Crisis in the Adams Family and Lurch and his Harpsichord. So, you know, when, before we before we get into this, you know, we're I always do the focus topics, and uh, now that we've done all the characters, let's get into a little bit more of Charles Adams and his first publication, Drawn and Quartered, uh, originally published 1942 by Random House Publications. It's an anthology of cartoons, which was also re-released in 1962 by Simon and Schuster. It only features four of the actual family cartoons in there, uh, but it does not actually feature his first cartoon that was published in the New Yorker uh, magazine, which was kind of a sports theme, really. Uh, it's a, a hockey player without his skates on, um, looking kind of guilty, saying, I forgot my skates. Um, but uh, that was not actually in th the first anthology. He, I don't think, really cared for that one. But um, the cover actually features uh, several different bits of art, but the most popular cover was um, a picture of Morticia and Lurch, and it's the cartoon called Oh, It's You. You know, So Lurch is bringing something to her, and she's gathering her shawl around her, and the quote is, Oh, It's You which he originally sold to the New Yorker for $110 in November 25th, 1939. It was originally published. That's the cover art uh, for the book. Uh, the book also contains a foreword by Boris Karloff. So, you know, as I said when I talked about Lurch, that the, the, uh, everyone wanted to keep the uh, Lurch associations with this character um, and, the, and the Frankenstone, Frankenstonian characteristics. So Boris Karloff doing the foreword kind of played into that. Um, and since this was his first book and anthology, uh, it was the first of many, uh, um, only four of those cartoons, not the four with the family, but only four of those cartoons weren't actually published from the New Yorker. Um, I'll probably get into how it was for Charles Adams being a fledgling cartoonist in the New Yorker, you know, a little later. But right now I want to go into paint you a little bigger picture about his life. This was, this was published in 1942 while Charles Adams was becoming a household name. This is a very big publication for him at the time, drawn and quartered. In January 1943, Charles Adams entered the Army uh, under a draft. Uh, then February 1943, his mother died after gallbladder surgery. So, you know, she was 66. He took a very, very hard and, you know, Considering he just had his first major publication, got drafted into the army. His Draft. Uh, so Charles Adams was drafted in 
1943, so one year after the publication of Drawn and Quartered. So if you take a look at it, you know, like in January 1943, he enters the Army under the draft, and then February 1943, his mother dies after gallbladder surgery. She's 66, but he took it super hard. And uh, then on May 29, 1943, he married his first wife and li lifelong friend, Barbara Day. Now, this isn't the ex-wife I talked about last week, but this is a, a good one. So the first ex-wife, Barbara Day. Uh, Charles Adams was credited, uh, credited the publication of Drawn and Quartered with being placed into the Signal Corps. Uh, the photographic center was on the Paramount, Paramount studio lot in Astoria, New York. So it was cake duty. Uh, he was assigned to Unit A, and that's where he met Stan Lee and some Disney animators and other artists like cartoonist Sam Cobain. Uh, so that was actually his BFF in the Army. In Drawn and Quartered, there's a cartoon of a man holding a noose and his presumably son in a scout uniform says, Hey, Pop, that's not a hangman's knot. While that was originally published by The New Yorker on October 25, 1941, a German publication also printed it. Joseph Gobler's Berliner Illustrati Zetrich. I'm sure I'm butchering that. But that ruffled the feathers of the Nazi editors and was used as a point uh, to, their, uh, to, to point out that the humor was so poor quality. Uh, but it was actually probably because the Germans just didn't get it. Uh, Charles Adams pissed off the Germans with his art, and that was really his contribution to the war effort. Ah, yes. So that is that is my story for today. <laughs> All right, on to the episode. On to the episode. So, uh, crisis in the Adams family. Okay, crisis in the Adams family. Originally aired March 12, 1965. Once again, Fester's Cannon has wrecked the plumbing. The Arthur J. Henson Insurance Agency, subsidiary of Eselstro Fidelity Insurance, is outraged by yet another in a series of payouts on the Adams policy. But a clause in the small print enables them to finally cancel it. Fester's allowance is subsequently suspended, so he gets a job as an insurance agent for Henson Insurance. It's not hard to guess with whom he sells his first policy, which has the head of the company in an uproar and storming his way into the Adams house to wheedle his way out of it. I really like this episode. This episode has this very interesting dramatic play between Fester and Gomez right in the beginning there. The Admiral John Paul Adams kind of story and play that they do. Well, before we get yeah, before we get to that, Gomez is setting up his cannonball and wants to play pirate with Fester, and Fester doesn't want to play um, Gomez's game. Yeah, because he's always playing kind of like the bad guy, you know, the, the second in command. He wants to play the admiral this time. And the battle Gomez talks about is the uh, battle between Admiral John Paul Adams and Admiral Tojo, who I'm assuming is supposed to be like. Uh, some Asian bad guy they probably made up for the show. Actually, it was a real person. <laughs> There's Admiral Tojo in real life? Uh, well, he was a general, and he was also Prime Minister of Japan, uh, but his name is uh, Hideki Tojo. 
and he was uh, commander of the Imperial Army, not the Imperial Fleet, as they mention in this one, but... Uh, yeah, this is a, a fictional account of a battle, a seagoing battle, um, that he was not there for, but uh, they did use his name. There is no John Paul Adams, but there is John, there's John Adams, there's John Adams, yes. but there's no John Paul Adams, there's John Paul Jones, who was a, um, who fought in the American, he was a naval commander in the American Revolutionary War. Ah, yeah, and this is uh, seemingly, uh, let's see, Admiral John Paul Adams was hung 200 years ago. Wait, what? There isn't, I, I said there is no John Paul Adams. Right. Yeah, in, in the episode. Oh, in the episode, okay. Real that, fact, though, there is no John Paul Adams, yes. but there's John Adams, but that's spelled with a, with a single D, not a double D, like uh, the Adams family's last name is spelled with a double D. My dear double D'd Adams, yes. Yes, uh, we get to uh, we get to um, we get we we get to a pun about some double D's in the next episode, but I'll wait till we get there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that they were they pointed it out. I'm just gonna follow along with what they said. Thirty six twenty one thirty six has to be double D. <laughs> uh, well, that that's the next episode. We'll wait for that. Um, so in this. Uh, Gomez is rightfully upset that Fester broke the plumbing again and cuts off his allowance. Now, you know, Fester says it couldn't have happened to anyone else. Uh, it could have happened to anyone. And Gomez says, not to an Adams. And I thought that was like a very sly, you know, dig at Fester not actually being an Adams. Uh, well, he's not, because he's Morticia's uh, uncle, not Gomez's brother like he was in the movies. Yes, he he is not actually an Adams, and uh, Gomez points it out as such, and uh, you know cuts off his allowance. Cause, you know, the insurance mail salesman in the episode is played by Eddie Quinlan, who, when IMDb brings it up, has <laughs> one of the few black and white photos I've seen like on IMDb as uh, their main cover photo. It's usually like people's movie posters. This is a weird black and white photo. It's like a brownish black and white. Um. Uh, was in uh, The Grapes of Wrath and Matlock and Little House on the Prairie and Father Dowling Mystery. and, and I, th uh, I think we've seen him before in a previous episode that featured the insurance agents. Oh, I don't... What uh, what episode had the insurance agents before this? Oh, let's see. There was one. I'm not remembering it off the top of my head, but we have dealt with the insurance company before. Oh, Okay. Um, Festa looks for a job and gets the job, I mean, begrudgingly to the insurance company, get, you know, starts working for them. Yeah. He, but after he work for the army because he doesn't like army food. Yeah, he, he does not like army food. He does not want to work for the army. Um, Gomez is a skydiver. That makes sense. It makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. Uh, he's, he considers it quote unquote jumping. Yeah, not really skydiving, jumping. And uh, Morticia says his theory is that if he uses a smaller and smaller parachute, soon he won't need one at all. That's fourth dimensional thinking for you. Not the third dimension that we live in, but uh, that's fourth dimensional thinking. So, uh, Fester sells his policy to Gomez because Gomez tries to, you know, 
you know, Fester's having a lot of difficulty trying to sell insurance policies. He went to every single person in his, in his territory, and no one wanted anything. Uh, but Gomez buys a million-dollar policy, and then later he wants to buy another one, so it kind of doubles the policy. And the insurance agents are just, yeah, terrified <laughs> about another insurance policy with the Adamses. I don't know why. I mean, the Adams family pay into their insurance. The insurance company should make money from it. Is it because they're they're doing it so often that the insurance company is paying out more than what the Adams family is paying in? That's what the implication is here. But insurance doesn't work that way. You can't do that. I guess not. But and if you do, if you do end up paying out an insurance policy on it, the same. Uh, family or project or business over and over again within the same year, um, you have to pay more into the into the policy and the insurance company can like put an end to your policy and, and force you to you know do it again. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Now, maybe the rules were different back then in the 60s or um, uh, television just had it completely wrong. Right. The uh, the other guy who was involved in the insurance company, he was in at least, yeah, he was in like six other episodes of The Addams Family, but it isn't quite listed as being like the same character. He's uh, No, he is. He's Arthur Henson. But this is... Um, yeah, Arthur Henson was the boss before he became the subordinate, and then his assistant Beasley became his boss at the end of the episode. He was the mayor? He was Mayor Henson? Um, well, he is Henson in this episode. Okay, but if you look at IMDb, they list him as the exact same character in every episode, which when Gomez ran for office, he was Mayor Henson at the time. But they make no mention of him being Mayor Henson in this episode. Huh. I didn't notice that. Don't know. Is it supposed to be the same person, perhaps, in the in the Adams world? Okay, so here's the thing. What year are we in right now? 1965, right? Okay, all right. So, okay, so I had to recycle the page. This is the first appearance of this character. He plays Arthur Henson in one, two, three, four, five, six more episodes of The Addams Family. Morticia's Favorite Charity, Progress in The Addams Family, Gomez the People's Choice, he becomes mayor, and then he's back to being regular Arthur J. Henson in the next two episodes after that in 1966. So he's got a few episodes ahead of him uh, coming up. Okay. All right. Okay. Does become mayor in one episode coming up. So this is the first time we're going to see Arthur J. Henson. It looks like he lasts. He's a recurring character throughout the show's uh, second uh, and and, uh, And final season. Second and final season. Yeah. Okay. So that's what confused me. I'm like, yeah, it's like, I know I've seen that guy so many episodes, so yeah. But no, we haven't. This is his first episode. <laughs> yeah, but I've been watching this for a while. This is my lifetime-long show, man. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and he was also on The Magical World of Disney, which was a uh, Sunday night uh, TV series. You know, families would gather around Sunday night to watch an hour-long episode. It was like kind of like a mini-movie sometimes. Like, it that? was like a Lifetime movie before Lifetime became a, a channel. Yeah, um, he was also on. Uh, he was also on the Dukes of Hazard, Quantum Leap, Mad About You, uh, Star Trek Voyager, and The Young and the Restless. This guy had a great in the career. <laughs> uh, let's see. It looks like his last role was in two thousand one. 
Yeah, Man and the Cat. I don't know what that is, but uh, before that, he was on Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. 1996 is Old Man Number One. Old Man. <laughs> he was on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, funny we mentioned that because um, the. Uh, oh, and he was also on The Flash. He was on the 1990s Flash TV series. He was the judge in the Trial of the Trickster episode. Uh, funny that we mentioned the Flash and the Fresh Prince of Bel Air because uh, as a day, as of today when we're recording this, the um, Vanity Fair Star Wars issue came out, and uh, this weekend Aladdin comes out with Will Smith playing the genie. I'm optimistic, but I'm not really optimistic over that. <laughs> so bad. Uh, I just don't understand why. I think it's going to be the first of the Disney downfalls of these. Let's make everything live action. It's like, no, no, stop doing that and just make keep making Marvel movies. Cause... <laughs> Aladdin was fine on its own. I loved Robin Williams in that. Right. Oh, and of course the controversy with the Avengers has already started. Oh, it didn't. It's 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 creeping towards eight hundred million dollars. It's not hitting a billion in the United States. Ooh. Oh my God, eight hundred million dollars. That must be a failure. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah. All right. Back to the episode. <laughs> they find out Buster is actually a relative of the Adams family, and they're okay with it. All plays out. The Adams family are just okay with ruining people's lives. Honestly. It's something that happens, and they take some sort of joy in it because they do collect these tokens from the people that they kind of ruin, but I don't think they really mean to do it in a malicious way. I, I think perhaps they're just... They have this perspective on life and about their lives that doesn't really match up with the rest of the world, and they're fine with that. It just seems like every five minutes they're ruining someone's lives, and it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no excuse for them. <laughs> you know, they they are living in their own bubble of of what they believe life is like for everyone else, and it is not accurate. But I can't really fault them for it. It's a world of their own making, and I admire that. Maybe. All right. Shall we take a break? I don't. Yeah. Let me just see if I had any other notes about this episode. No. Yeah. That that that's it. They uh. He sinks that ship one more time, which is, it's a, uh, it's the same sight gag repeated in the episode at the beginning and at the end, but it's still funny that it's a boat in the water and then it cracks in half. Yeah, it cracks in half and then the plumbing spills out and so therefore he's got to, yeah, yeah, it's just spilling out water. <laughs> it's a nice sight gag. Yeah, the prop guy just has that extra, uh, you know, that, that extra one ready. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to take a break with some messages from our sponsors and other yes, podcasts. Yes, take a message from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back for the next episode of The Adams Family here in the Dead TV Podcast. This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located in 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell him Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. And we're back with the Dead TV Podcast with the next episode of the Adams Family, Lurch and the Harpsichord. Episode 25, Lurch and his Harpsichord, originally aired 
March 19, 1965. Lurch feels betrayed when Gomez and Morticia give their antique harpsichord to a museum. He threatens to quit. He actually tries to, too, several times in this episode. The, um, he feels very betrayed. Okay, so this guy comes along to buy the harpsichord after hearing it because it's the harp, it's the same, um, kind of music that his mother used to play, right? Well, that was his mother used to play and that was played at her funeral. Right. So, what I wouldn't care. I'd be like, no, get out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Adams family are very welcoming. doesn't matter who they are. They're just usually very welcoming to everyone. And uh, so, you know, he hears that the harpsichord music, he wanders in, sees everything on the walls, and he isn't immediately scared off. Uh, the, the Mr. Belmont is his name. Yeah, Mr. Belmont, Oscar Belmont, the curator of the Fine Arts Museum. Does he say the Fine... Okay, it's the Fine Arts Museum. Is there a Fine Arts Museum anywhere? Oh, there's Fine Arts Museums everywhere. Is there anyone in particular that we could find online that we would have a note about? Uh, there's too many to mention. The Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. Uh... The M. H. D. Young Memorial Museum, located in San Francisco's Golden I- Golden Gate Park, it's the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. Actor Brian Folger was in the man, the man they could not hang, Boris Karloff, the man with nine lives, the Wild Wild West TV series, the aforementioned Magical World of Disney Sunday. Uh, evening show, the Andy Griffith show, Get Smart, Beverly Hills, the Beverly Hillbillies, The Fugitive, Bonanza, Wagon Train, Rawhide, The Red Skeleton Show, Lassie. Had a, quite a career on some of the more famous television shows of the bygone era. Nice. Yeah, he, the the actor has a very particular look, like. In this episode, you don't really get the idea that he's a con man, per se, but he does have this, like, creepiness r- around the harpsichord. Like, he does give it a kiss. I don't know. It's kind of kind of creepy. He plays that up a lot. The, um... The harpsichord that you see um, that Lurch usually plays is actually just a shell. Like, there is actually no harpsichord parts in there at all. Um, the harpsichord that they talk about uh, in this episode is given to them by Cousin Crimp. And Cousin Crimp actually had two heads, one male, one female head, four arms, and one glass eye. So when they mention in the, uh, Gomez mentions in this episode that, he, uh, that Cousin Crimp used to play four-handed uh, minuets, uh, yeah, that's the description of Cousin Crimp. Two heads, four arms. In this episode, you do see the uh, Thing and Lurch in the same scene, like right in the beginning. And uh, whenever they do that, Thing is usually played by assistant director Jack Vaughlin. Do you know what makes a harpsichord different than a piano? Yes, I do. Sounding mechanism. Piano is a strung... Struck a... St- it, it, sorry. A piano is a struck string instrument that makes sound by striking strings with hammers and vibrating them. But a harpsichord, it's plucking the strings that makes the sound plucking instead of vibrating. Correct. Correct. 
And so I've never seen a harpsichord in real life as far as I can remember. I've only ever seen a piano. I Unless have, they use church or something, I don't know. I have actually played a harpsichord, and uh, it is one thing that you don't realize, the difference between a harpsichord and a piano, is that th- the pressure in which that you press a piano keys, you can get that soft sound and, and a very hard sound. With a harpsichord, it sounds the same no matter how hard you hit the key. There's very little variance there because it is a pluck of the string, and then the release of the key softens that vibration. So the actual plucking is always identical. Uh, when Lurch tries to smile, it reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2 when he tries to mimic someone's smile. He looks over the, across the parking lot and scans a guy's smile and then tries to smile, and the kid tells him, don't, don't, don't smile. Don't smile, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, More again, frightening than anything. Reason I bring up Terminator, not just because of Lurch's attitude, tomorrow, Thursday, uh, yeah, Thursday, the day before this will uh, post, Terminator Dark Fate, the trailer, will come out for the sixth Terminator movie. Because we needed another Terminator movie. That was just begging to be made, right? With Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton, and produced by James Cameron, and from the director of Deadpool. Are you are you joking here? No. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know if that's a hot mess or a good time. <laughs> Eight a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be up. Okay. All right. <laughs> so Lurch cries some ridiculous crocodile tears that look so fake. Uh, he tries a drum set. He tries knitting, and neither one wor- works. And then that's when uh, Gomez and Fester decide to build him a new harpsichord. In three days, in which three days. would not be possible. But the but in the Adams Family group that we post in, the Adams Family fans have reason to believe that the that the Adams Family aren't so much dead or ghouls that they just live in cartoon logic. Like this is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where cartoon characters have you know weird weird logic or whatever compared to the laws of physics in the real world. I could believe that. So they can build. They can build a harpsichord in three days. It's kind of like an old gag where Bugs Bunny would mail something, and then the then the mailman would show up two seconds later, package for Bugs Bunny, yep. and then back to what he's doing. Of course, we can do that today. We can order something from Amazon and have it show up in an hour. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Same day delivery. Um, and they decide to start measuring the harpsichord that they're building. The measurements are 36, 21, 36, which, according to Gomez, are Morticia's measurements of her body. Now, what was Carolyn's measurements in real life? Oh, I don't actually have her measurements. No, she doesn't publish those. Oh, come on. But but there are celebrity websites out there that you can type in the bus size of any any woman and go, oh, uh, you know, whatever. Um, um, Nowadays they are, but... What, then, I'm trying to think of this really busty actress that's been in a ton of stuff. That's just breasts are just oh beautiful, um, and you can like you can type in like any actress in Hollywood, and they'll determine easily how big her breast size is. Like a uh, Cat Denning or something. This who's is got, sounding like, really creepy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, listen, I'm not the one who builds the internet. I'm just telling you what you can do. What you can find on the internet. Well, yeah, I. I can't say about Carolyn Jones's actual measurements. It's not really stated in her biography, but I will say that when I was a model, my measurements were 36, 23, 40. 
and I did get down to a 21 waist at one time, but it started looking a little. Okay, so wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where is the okay? So break down the measurements and how they how they how they are. So okay. the 30 so would be the is the bust. Okay. 24 is the waist. Okay, and then the the other is the 40 ass. is hip. The, oh, the hip. Sorry, not the ass. Okay. So, yeah, but I did get down to 21, but it started to look a little freaky, so I stopped doing that. So 24 was right around where it was more uh, attractive. <laughs> okay, we do the website bodysize.org, which lists any, again, any, any, uh, um... Okay, put in Carolyn Jones. Let, let's see, let's see this. 31, 25, 33. Oh, I wonder where they're getting that calculation. Uh, measurements of pixels on pictures. I'm based on the dresses, the, the dresses have to be, have to be there. I mean, according to this, she was a size four. Yeah, but you Third, know, you know, I, size four sizing on women's outfits doesn't really matter as much because it varies from maker to maker. Okay. So unless the computer is taking a look at the images and then calculating it based on pixel size and relative distance to things, you know, which is possible, quite possible. I mean, again, I'm, I'm assuming that it's basing it on, I mean, obviously it's hard to do it on somebody who is dead and yeah. easier to do it on someone who's alive where everyone's measurements are, are like recorded in, in, you know, in something and, and somebody posted online or whatever when a celebrity puts a costume on or, or yeah. whatever, you know, Scarlett Johansson or something. Yeah. You wanted to find out what Scarlett Johansson's measurements are, you know, so you can you can replicate her, her Black Widow costume. Mm-hmm. Which they, by the way, they just announced the Scarlet Witch, Scar- the Black Widow movie coming, uh-huh. is going to star Scarlett Johansson and take place after the events of Civil War. Ooh. So it will be in the time period her and Cap are kind of, uh, um, you know, on the run from the law. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, so that that made a lot of people happy that it wasn't a, they weren't, we weren't going all the way back in time again to, you know, <laughs> Avengers, or sorry, even pre-Iron Man 2. So, you know, in this episode, Fester suggests that uh, Lurch should really start talking to his pen pal Yvette from the Follies Bergere. Um, this isn't the first time that the Follies Bergere has been mentioned. Uh, in the episode with the um, ham radio snafu, um, Fester was wanting to send a message to Yvette. Well, the Follies Bergere is kind of a nude burlesque show in uh, Paris. Oh, have you been there? I have not, no. Um, the next question was, were you in it? <laughs> no. What, what's the name of the burlesque show? The Follies Bergere. Fuck do you spell that? <laughs> F-O-L-I-E-S-B-E-R-G-E. Got it. Yep, as soon as you start, Google's spelling it for you. Okay, I got it now. Yep. Opened in 1869. Yeah, that makes sense that Gomez probably would have been there. Well, it's Fester's, uh, Fester's uh, pen pal, Yvette, actually Uh-oh. works there. And in this ben- episode, he says that if you want her to actually come out and visit, just pay her fare. Yeah, so she must be a, a lady about town. It's still open today. They did Zorro the musical there. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, Josephine Baker actually um, worked there as well for a time. Interesting. Yeah. 
But the joy on Lurch's face when he gets back his harpsichord, you know, even though it's the fake one, you know, the joy on his face is just, ah, oh, delicious. It is fantastic, the, the amount of just utter ecstasy upon playing that harpsichord. Did you notice we also have two back-to-back episodes with no none of the kids in it? And I'm wondering if that's because um, they film the kids, um, their stuff all together, and then keep it you know stored away so they can get as much use out of them as they can because kids can only work so so many hours per day, um, and then they do other stuff you know without them, other episodes without them. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Grandma is not in either of these episodes either. Other than the picture on the wall. Yes. Which, yeah. Doesn't count. Yeah. Um, but do you, uh, do you think they still get paid for that picture on the wall? Do they get paid for being in the opening and ending credits, even though they're not in the episode? Hmm. Good question. Very good question. If we ever get the Adam Family Historian on the show, that'd be a great question to ask. Or Lisa herself. So if if you wanted to buy a harpsichord now, you know, it is a pretty expensive object. You know, you're looking to pay at least like $20,000 to, you know, I found one for $75,000. So Oh, you found one for $75,000. I did find one for $75,000. You were just driving along, yard sailing, somebody had it on the front lawn. <laughs> yeah, 17th century French double manual harpsichord right there, right on the curb. <laughs> That just, just packing into my car. would do whatever. They would just find some harpsichord in the corner. Oh, we didn't want this harpsichord to be on the corner all by itself. We decided to take it home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they have Lurch as a member of the family. Yes. He's a servant, and he has days off and all that, but he is considered a member of the family, but feels betrayed. Uh, betrayed. When, betrayed. When museum movers come and take the harpsichord away. The museum movers are the funniest characters in the episode. Well, they have the standard Adam's response of, you know, fear and uh, bewilderment. It's a little funny. It, it was funny if they um, if they had filmed in the uh, the museum or something with the, the harpsichord there. Yeah. But they don't have a museum set. Now, Lurch, does Lurch own the harpsichord or do the Adams own it? The Adams own the harpsichord. They were going okay. to give him the fake harpsichord in this episode. Like, it would be his oh, I guess, forever. I just, it seemed like it was his or whatever, the way he acted or whatever. It really seemed like he was it was his. Yeah, no, uh, it, it is only his in spirit, and he's the one that plays it. Leonard Bremen, 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 B-R-E-M-E-N, plays one of the two movers for the museum, and he has been in many things. Uh, that are pretty well known to people, such as Different Strokes, The Brady Bunch, Get Smart, The Beverly Hillbillies, Batman, Bewitched. He's in more than one episode of The Addams Family, The Twilight Zone, Perry Mason, The Untouchables, and so on and so forth. The other mover is uh, Ray Galvin. 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 And, uh, let's see, he... Let's see, his last credit was in 1991 for American Playhouse TV series, but he was also in Police Story, uh, The FBI, Wild Riders, Mannix, uh, Gunsmoke, and The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Not as long as credits, but... Uh, oh, credits. You always got to wonder, what is the story with these, some of these people that have 
But this guy has got, what, 21 credits to his name spread out from 1962 to 1991? What else was he doing? You know, was he just doing, was he like a lot of actors I know who are working shitty jobs and as soon as they get a, a notice about a role to go to go audition, they stop what they're doing to go to go do that role and, and, and put their uh, nine to five job on hold? You know, hey, you got to do what you got to do to make the bills. I mean, I hear that. I hear I hear that a lot. That's yeah. that's that's what's happening. Um, so, the, so he gets, they take the harpsichord again, unfortunately. Yeah, they they take the fake one. It ends up that the museum, of course, knows that it's a fake, and the guy trying to sell it to them, uh, the uh, Oscar Belmont, uh, yeah. goes to jail. Yeah, uh, he's. Uh, going to get life in prison because Gomez is his defender, which I think would actually be a conflict of interest, and he wouldn't actually be allowed to do that. But yeah, uh, he's going to get life in prison because Gomez is defending him. By the way, one of the uh, movies that um, the second, uh, the one that we were just talking about, the guy who's only got twenty-one credits to his name, I kind of really want to see. It's called Unholy Rollers, a locker room look at the toughest broads in the world. It's basically roller derby girls. Oh. Okay. Rated um, R, so you know it's going to have some... Uh, some nudity, some, like, some, uh, yeah. breasts flopping out of the tops, yeah. Yeah. From, from 1972, <laughs> oh, you fucking... Oh, yeah. Some, probably some nudity. I mean, the poster alone has a woman pulling her pants down. <laughs> yeah, there's probably some, uh, like... High, high Daisy Dukes with the ass hanging out and uh, breast flopping out and lots of bruises and cursing. It'd probably be amazingly bad, but good. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with it at all, no. Well, well, that's all the notes I have for this episode. Uh, the he, the guy was trying to sell it to the museum for $15,000 in today's money. That would be about 121000 I was going to read, um, as a quick little bonus, uh, some of the IMDb, uh, sorry, some of the iTunes reviews for us, but we don't have any. We don't have any iTunes reviews for this year, and all the iTunes reviews old, we've yeah. over have been for Friday, most of them are for Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm stressing, if you're listening to this, leave an iTunes review on iTunes for us about the Adams Family, if you could. So we could actually read it on air. Or something. That would be great. Or you can send us an email at thatradiohorror at gmail.com. And for the person on Podbean, who I hope you're listening, dummy, no shit this is based on all based on TV shows. <laughs> comment on Podbean saying, I'm un- I am unsubscribing to this and not listening anymore because ah, this is nothing but, but, but television shows. That's exactly what we state in the beginning of every episode. But it wasn't just about this podcast. It was also about supernatural creatures and lore, which in the beginning of every episode of Supernatural Creatures and Lore, it says, based on the tele- monsters that appear on the TV series, Supernatural. Whatever. A shock. And then, of course, if you don't want one based on a TV show, there's Goth Girl Horror, the new podcast that just got started. It's about the comic book series Hackslash, created by Tim Seeley. We go through it one issue at a time. We are in 2006 right now, so we have a long ways to go. <laughs> there is no pleasing people sometimes. Channels just hate. So, well, and, and it just like ending part out and just happened to mention the podcast. 
If you can, if you'd like to find us, go to the Dead TV podcast on Facebook. You can also find us at Chris D S A V and at Elegantly Kinky. And you can also send us an email at radiohorror at gmail.com as well as sending us an iTunes review or a Google Share review or a, um, I almost said Spodcast, but that's Kevin Smith. Um, a um, Shudder. Nope, that's the uh, horror streaming service. What's the other one I'm thinking of? Wherever you happen to listen to us, send us, <laughs> oh, send us a review. <laughs> I guess I can't think of the other ones we're on, so... We'll be back next week with another episode of the Dead TV Podcast. I think we're about finished with season one of the Adams Family. Yeah, we still got a little bit to go.